0: Bless you guys! Thanks for joining us. Good to have you with us uh, here uh, on this wonderful Sunday morning. I want to start by uh, giving a shout out of thanks to Dan. D- he did a great job. Dan, you did a great job last week. Uh, incredible message. This is one of the reasons why I just think it's so it's such a blessing to have a a, a leadership or a preaching team, a team of folks that can do this. Because yeah, I never would have saw I, I never would have got the lesson that Dan got out of these verses. But now that he's drawn that lesson out from them, I can totally see how he got that. But it wouldn't have occurred to me. And so I just appreciate the different perspectives we, 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 we bring to the table when we have uh, different speakers here. Uh, it's an important message. If you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go and listen to it. It's basically, Dan's talking about how do, you, how do you live by God's grace without turning into a couch potato? How do you live by God's grace without being demotivated to passionately pursue Christ-likeness? Uh, it's a very important topic, and I don't, I've never heard it talked on as well as it was talked on last week. You rock, dude. So, so, so thanks a lot. Uh, we're camping out on these four verses here in this uh, Sermon on the Mount series that we're doing. Uh, this is Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And we're going to park here for a little bit because these are really, really important passages. N.T. Wright says that, that these, four pa- these four verses are, are the gateway to everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and for that reason, we'll be coming back to these passages, I suspect, as we go on uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, because they're so foundational to everything that follows. In these four verses, we find out what Jesus thinks about Scripture, and we'll talk about that next week. Uh, we find out what Jesus thinks about himself, how he views himself. we are gonna talk about that uh, the week after that. Uh, we find out uh, his understanding of what righteousness is. Uh, his understanding of the law, the way he interprets the law, there's so much foundational that's here. So we're not going to be in a rush to, to move on past these passages here. I want to entitle this message this morning, uh, The Kingdom's Bullseye. The Bullseye. Because this topic that I'm going to be speaking on is, I think, the center of the center of everything that we're about. It is uh, the number one goal of our Christian life. It's, it, it sums up everything that we're, we're to be passionate about. I don't think I could talk on a more important topic than the one I'm going to be talking on here this morning. It's just really uh, crucial. And because it's such a vital part of uh, Scripture, um, it's a vital teaching, foundational teaching here at Woodland Hills Church. And <clears throat> so this will be somewhat review <coughs> for folks who have been here for a year or two or longer. But for, uh, I, I'm told that we've grown by several hundred During this COVID season. So, hello guys, nice to have you on board. And I wanted to give this foundational teaching to bring us all to speed on what is the center of the center, the bullseye for Woodland Hills Church. You know where we stand. I will warn you ahead of time that that this this message is packed with scripture. And it's packed with very, very important scripture. So, I encourage you, I, I really mean this, I encourage you to have a pencil or a pen and some paper and write down the verses. You don't write out the verses, but just write them down. And if there's any passages in the Bible that you feel you are important enough to memorize, this would be them. <laughs> These are foundational stuff. And it's all the more important because as important as this topic is, it's, never, it's rarely, at least, rarely emphasized. It's really given the, the, the emphasis that it has in the New Testament. In fact, it's frequently minimized and sometimes completely ignored, even though I think it's the center of the center. So here's what here's how the passage reads: Matthew five verses seventeen through twenty. Jesus says, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Uh, pray with me here just for a moment. Father, I pray that you open our eyes, to the degree that our eyes are closed, open our eyes to see truth and to receive truth, to digest truth and to be transformed by truth. Lord, I, if this message uh, conflicts with what some people have been taught in the past, I just pray, God, you you help them have an open mind as as, as we together consider what Scripture is saying about this topic, about these passages, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Come on, you can do better than that. A little louder. Amen. And while you're at it, give Dan a piano clap for the great job he did last week. All right. Oh, Dan, they're going crazy for you. Listen to that crowd. Oh, they love you. They love you. They adore you. All right. All right. So Jesus starts by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. When he says, I, I don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, That's a first century sort of idiomatic way of just referring to the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Um, And so he's saying, you know, don't think that I've come to abolish the Bible. That was the whole Bible they knew, the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And by extension, it would apply to us with the New Testament. We'd say the whole Bible. And so Jesus is saying, don't think I've come to abolish the Bible, whether it's the law or the prophets or or anything. Um, No, I've come to fulfill them. But why do you think he starts by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets? Why would he start the teaching that way. And it only makes sense if he's saying this in response to the fact that some people are saying that he's coming to abolish the law and the prophets. Especially some of the religious leaders know that we're, we're spreading the rumor. This guy is a lawbreaker. He doesn't hear the law. He doesn't go according to Scripture. Now why would they think that? Here, here's the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, he's, he's sinless. How could they think that he was be a, a rule breaker, a lawbreaker, a Scripture violator? Well, there's three things I can think of that come to mind as to why they might think this. The first is that Jesus taught that love is the fulfillment of the entire law. Uh, This is a very important passage, Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 34 through 40. Listen to this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the greatest in first commandment, but the second is like it. Because you can't fulfill the one without fulfilling the second. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says that loving God and loving, loving your neighbor as yourself, it fulfills the entire law. Everything hangs on this. Now see, to legalists back then and to legalists today. And by legalists, I mean anybody who who's, gets their worth from the fact that they are, they're, they're compliant with the rules. They're, they keep the rules. They abide by the laws. Those sinners out there, they break the rules, but we are the righteous who keep the rules. So if that's your form of life, you get life from that. Well, then when you hear somebody say, hey, it's all about love. It's about love God and love your neighbor, and, and that's really everything. Well, that's taking away your idol. Like, that's, you don't want to hear that. No, you get, you get points because you keep rules in, in contrast to those people who don't. Don't say it's all about love. No. Fundamentalists back then and fundamentalists today. Legalists back then and legalists today. When they hear about the love of God and, and how we're just supposed to love each other, they hear this wishy-washy liberalism. Yeah, love, 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 love. Love God, lovey-dovey. Oh, of course we're all supposed to love, they might say. But, but we also know, we who hold the truth, we also know that God needs to crack down on sin. And God commissions us to crack down on sin. Not all sin, of course. He can't do that. And certainly not our sin, because our sins are the little, bitty, tiny, minuscule sort of sins that, you know, don't really bother God much. No, but we need to crack God down on the, the deal-breaker sins, the big sins, the ones that really tick God off. Not our sins, but their sins. So when you come around and just say, God's we're supposed to love each other and love God, it sounds to them like wishy-washy. And, 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 and to, to, to someone who's getting life from being a rule keeper, it, it will sound like you're abolishing the law. He's just doing away with the law, all the instruction, all the rules, love, love, love. That's all. Second thing is is this. Not only did Jesus not crack down on sinners, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and others did, and like they wanted him to do. Not only did he not crack down on them, but he actually hung out with them. He went to parties with them. He had dinners with them. It says this explicitly in the Gospels. He, he, He had fellowship with sinners, with the worst of sinners. In the first century, that would be tax collectors and prostitutes. They were kind of the bottom rung. Well, Jesus hung out with them. They gravitated towards him, and, and he had fellowship with them. He had dinner with them. In the first century culture, to have dinner with somebody is kind of a way of saying, you're my peeps. You're my people. So the uh, legalists, when they look at this, uh, they, 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 of course, think that uh, this is an outrage. They're outraged by it. Uh, Jesus here, these, these prostitutes, these prostitutes are gravitating towards him, Well, you know, uh, look at uh, birds of a feather flock together and you can judge a man by the character he keeps, right? And so they decide that Jesus is a sinner. And we have that in the Gospels. They thought he was a glutton. They thought he was a drunkard. They thought he was a sinner because he hung out with sinners. And so that must mean he's a a rule breaker. He's He's a law breaker. He's abolishing the law and the prophets. He's abolishing the whole Bible. And the third thing is that sometimes, frankly, to me at least, it seems like Jesus is playing a little bit loose with the rules. He certainly didn't seem like he was sort of an anal rule take, keeper. Um, he seems sometimes to even set the law aside, or at least to kind of contradict the common understanding of the law. So, for example, uh, most folks at this time, certainly the Pharisees and Sadducees thought this, they assumed that uh, uh, you're not allowed to gather food, you pick corn or any other kind of crop on the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they had a point because in the Old Testament, you may recall that there's one guy who got stoned to death because he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't abide by that. He lets his disciples pick corn and uh, gather crops on, on, on the Sabbath in one instance. Uh, he heals on the Sabbath, and that's constantly ticking off the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He teaches things like, uh, you know, uh, Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. And what he's getting at there is—he's—he's really tipping his hand to how he interprets the law. Yes, the law is good, but it's got to be in service to love. It's got to be in service to humanity. Uh, it's not an end in and of itself. God didn't put these rules here as an end in and of himself. No, they're going somewhere, and where they're supposed to go is supposed to be pro-human. It was made for the Sabbath. The whole law was—the uh, Sabbath was made for humanity. The whole law was made for humanity. Um, it's to be promoted with love. Uh, with love, but see, for the legalists then and now. That can really tick them off. It sounds like you're abolishing the law, Jesus. One time, you, you, some of you recall this. In John 8, there was a story about the lady who was caught in the act of adultery. And all the men who had caught her uh, brought the, her to Jesus. One wonders where the other guy was. Last I heard, last I checked, it takes two to do this. But we don't hear about the guy who was guilty, just the woman. So they bring this woman, this poor woman, uh, to, to Jesus. Now, the law requires that uh, adulterers who are called in the act are to be stoned to death. And so they bring the, this woman to Jesus and said, we caught her in the act. There's no question about whether she did it or not. The law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And, and, and Jesus doesn't dispute the law. What he does is he, he says, okay, let's go have a, let's have a party. Pick up your stones. And, and, and the person who is innocent can throw the first stone. After that, it's, all, it's a free-for-all. But the one who is innocent... Uh, throw the first stone. Well, no one was innocent, especially if they had heard Jesus' t- teaching that we'll get to a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, where it's, if, if you look at someone and lust after them, you've already committed adultery with them. So they, they, they had enough self-awareness to know that none of them were innocent of this. They were as guilty as she was. They had lusted in their, in, in their hearts. And so they had to leave, and, 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 and the lady goes free, even though the law required her to be stoned. Now, if you think about it, it's not hard to see why this would really tick off a legalist. Because, look, if, if only a sinless person—what Jesus is saying is that only a sinless person would, is ever justified to throw the stone. Only the sin, a sinless person is justified carrying out capital punishment. And since we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God— well, now you've got to wonder how on earth would anyone ever have been justified in the Old Testament carrying out any of the laws, there's 20 some, that require capital punishment. If you have to be sinless to be justified carrying it out, then no one could do it. In fact, and maybe this is just me, I'm just saying, as far as I can see, this principle applies. I don't expect the world to listen to Jesus' teachings. That, I, I don't expect that. I, I would hope Jesus' followers would, 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 would give credence to Jesus' teachings. And it seems to me that it would apply as much today as it applied back then. Uh, if you're going to pull the switch on somebody, if you're going to give an injection to somebody, you're going to send somebody to the beyond, you've got to be innocent. And since no one's innocent, without denying the law about capital punishment, it renders it obsolete because no, one can, no one's justified carrying it out. Well, you can see why people say, well, this is lawlessness. You're abolishing the law. And Jesus, he, he conflicts with the Old Testament in, in some other ways. Or at least he appears to be a little bit looser with the the law uh, in in some subtle ways. Uh, One of my favorites is is this, the story of of this woman who had an issue of blood. That's usually how it's translated. Issue of blood. I know there's kids watching, so I'm going to keep it coded. Uh, Adults know what I'm talking about. And and in the Old Testament, the law was that when a woman's having an issue of blood once a month, uh, or at any other time, uh, she's ceremonially unclean. Which means she's not allowed to have contact with anybody. In fact, there's a law, there's rules about how far away from her people have to stand. No one's allowed to touch her, including her own husband, during the time she has this issue of blood. No contact. In fact, the law required that a woman who has an issue of blood has to wear a certain garment, if she's going to go out in public, she has to wear a certain garment to warn people that she's, that she's unclean. Stay away from me, don't touch me. Because if you touch me, <coughs> excuse me, uh, if, if anyone touches her, then they're unclean. And then they got; they have to go and wash themselves, go through a purification in order to re-enter society. Well, in this episode, there's a woman with an issue of blood, but her or hers wasn't a natural issue of blood. She'd had this condition nonstop for 15 years, and you try to enter into what that must be like. You talk about quarantine; we're going nuts being quarantined for a year now, and it is terrible. But here, this lady. If, if they were carrying out the law, as the law stipulates, she would have been quarantined for 15 years. No human contact whatsoever. She's barred from human society. But she hears this, this, these rumors about this Messiah who's going around and he's healing people and fantastic healings. Now, she's quarantined. How is she ever going to come in contact with this guy in order to possibly get healed from him? Because so she does something radical. For, for a Jewish woman in the first century, this is radical. She's going to go out and get Jesus. Now she goes out and Jesus has got a crowd around him because Jesus always got a crowd around him. But she's not wearing her garment warning people to stay away. Nope, no garment there. She rather plows through the crowd because to, to, she's thinking to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just lay a hand on him, uh, then, then maybe I'll be made whole. And so she works her way up to, to Jesus and then trying to be discreet, touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus senses the power of God going out of him to bring healing to this lady. So he turns around and says, who touched me? Now, I bet there's a bunch of people who are touching Jesus because there's a crowd around him. But this lady would know what he's talking about. She discreetly touches the hem of his garment, and he feels it. Turns out, who touched me? And I suspect that she was terrified because this guy could now, this rabbi, this holy man of God, could out her in front of everybody, and, and it would, could be terrible. She broke all the rules. She didn't put on her garment. She touched people. She, she rendered them unclean. But Jesus doesn't doesn't rail at her. He doesn't get angry with her. To the contrary, he compliments her. Great is your faith, woman, to do that. That, That's a great faith. He compliments her. And then he doesn't go and wash himself. He continues on with his ministry. So you can see why to an outsider, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they would think to themselves, man, it looks like Jesus is breaking the rules. Maybe you're wondering that right now yourself. Like, well... Yeah, it is kind of breaking the rules, isn't it? Several times, in fact, Jesus seems to take an Old Testament teaching and replace it with his own. The most famous case being, and we'll get to this later on the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That law is recorded three times in the Old Testament, two of the times. It's a requirement, not just a permission, but a requirement. Show no mercy, you must take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Big law. Jesus says, yeah, well, that, you've heard that. But I say unto you, don't do that. No, here's what you do. Um, uh, I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to go the second mile. I want you to love your enemies. I want, to ble- I want you to bless those who persecute you. Here, here's the new teaching that replaces that one. So to follow Jesus, you've got to break the Old Testament law. At least that one. No, no exacting vengeance. And you find this throughout the whole New Testament. Leave all vengeance to God. Don't go for that eye, eye tooth for a tooth deal. No, that just leaves everyone blind and toothless. Uh, We're going to operate with a different program here. We're going to operate with love. And so you can see why when the Pharisees and Sadducees heard that, they're like, whoa, this guy is lawless. He's breaking the rules. It looks like that. Frankly, it looks like that. That guy would say, it doesn't just look like that. I, I don't know how you can explain, get around it without it, saying that he broke some of the rules. But Jesus says, no, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish anything. You'll see next week that he affirms all this as being divinely inspired. Um, he, he holds it up as, as, as the word of God. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. Now, immediately you've got to be thinking, well, wait a minute, you just, he just broke some of the rules. Or at least he certainly seemed to break some of the rules. Or at least he broke the common understanding about what the rules imply. So how can he say that not one stroke of the pen is going to pass from the law you know, until all is fulfilled? How can he say that? That jot and tittle, it's the littlest mark you can make in, in the Hebrew alphabet. Not, not a single little marking is going to pass until, until everything's fulfilled. How could Jesus say that? Well, now follow me here, okay? Um, if uh, if you take that literally, then Jesus, I have to say it, is simply wrong. Because a lot of jot and tittles have been lost. Uh, in fact, we, all the original ones have been lost. We don't have the original manuscripts for the Old Testament. We have got ancient copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies and so on and so on. That's the whole, what's called the textual tradition. But we don't know, we, we don't have the exact original. We can, we can uh, work our way back through looking at the copies to get a very close approximation to the original. I'm told that somewhere like 1% to 2% of, of uh, the New Testament and maybe uh, less than 1% of the Old Testament, we're not sure exactly what the wording is. No, don't worry about that because um, it's, uh, it, nothing of, of substance hangs in this. But, but certainly jots and tittles have been lost. So if Jesus is saying, not one stroke of the original is going to be lost, well, then he'd be wrong. But he also, he can't be meaning it literally because, as I just showed you, he himself doesn't live that way. So what is he getting at? What is he saying? Well, here, here's the thing. There, there's two ways of fulfilling the law. In fact, there's two ways of fulfilling anything if you're thinking first century on the one hand, you can fulfill the law by meticulously following every detail of it. Meticulous compliance. And that's what the Pharisees always strove uh, for. Absolute compliance. Uh, and so you do if you can live out the law perfectly, all 613 laws, well then, no, you can fulfill it that way. Or, you can f- f- fulfill it in in a different way. Uh, in, in, you can fulfill it in terms of doing what the law intends to do. Doing what God intended the law to do, to, to, to embody that, is a way of fulfilling the law. And this is, I think, exactly what Jesus is doing. It's what he's, it's what he's saying in Matthew 22, the passage we read earlier. What's the greatest commandment? Now, he, 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 I didn't point this out earlier, but this is, I think, The first thing that's interesting about this passage in Matthew 22, where he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and and love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting is that Jesus, the guy asks, What's the greatest command? And Jesus answers him. Which is quite surprising because Jesus usually doesn't answer people's questions. He very rarely answers people's questions. He usually turns their questions back on them and, and basically says, Here's the question you should have asked, or here's the thing you should be concerned about. But in this case, he answers him. Which, he, he's, he, which means he's, he's, he sees this guy as asking the right question. What's the greatest command? Well, that's a good question to ask, which tells you a lot. It means that there is a greatest command. It means that not all the commands are equal. Uh, it, it's not obvious that, that that would be the answer he'd give. One might. I would think some rabbis in the first century might have answered it this way. Don't ask me about what's the greatest command. They're all inspired by God, so they're all equally important. And that's how some people read the Bible. It's a flat thing. Jesus says, no, no, it's not, it's not all one thing on one level. No, there's the greatest, and then there's the least, and there's things in between. Um, He does the same thing when he talks to the the Pharisees at one point, and he chides them. He says, you guys, you're so, you're, you're so anal about tithing, that you even tithe mint and cumin, you even tithe your spices, and yet you neglect the more important matters of the law, the weightier matters of the law, which is about love and justice, because, goes, yay for you tithing like that, but you, you're missing the forest through the trees. There's perspective Jesus talks about. There's a, there's a, there's a greatest, and at least that he talks about. He doesn't read the Bible as a flat book. And what he's saying is, is that if, if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, on this hang all the law and prophets. He's saying, if you aim at this, then everything you need to get done will get done. Because you're, you're fulfilling the intention of the law. Jesus believes that God gave the law ultimately as a means of, of, of growing us in love, showing us what love looks like. And, and so the intention is to make us loving people who love God and love our neighbor as our, 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 ourselves. So th- this was a, it's a completely new way of looking at the law. And yet we know that it was a foundational teaching of the early church because we find it all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Romans uh, 13, Paul says this. Uh, he goes, "Oh, no one anything, except to love one another. I guess we owe people that. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Like, adhere to the Sabbath rules. Um, All of them are summed up in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like Paul can't help himself. He keeps on going. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Pa- Paul's saying this is the bullseye to love like this. If, if you shoot for this, everything you need to get done will get done. But see, if you miss this and everything you need to get done, it doesn't matter if you get it done because you haven't fulfilled the intention of the law. This is why Jesus says his, that, that his righteousness and the righteousness of his followers needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's because Jesus is getting at the true intention of the law, which is about not just behavior and compliance, but about the condition of your heart, the condition of your soul. And we'll tell you more about that as we go on. Uh, and so Paul is saying that, that, that this kind of love fulfills all the law, and that's why we here at Woodland Hills teach, as one of our most foundational principles, maybe our most foundational principle. We teach that, that love is the beginning, middle, and end of everything that we are to be about. Love is the center of the center. Love is Christianity 101 because it's so basic, so simple. It's, it's children's church, but it's also Christianity PhD because we can never outgrow this. It's, it's, we're always going to be aspiring towards this. It's always to be the center that, that we gravitate towards and that we put the most emphasis on. The thing is, it's, it, this is rarely... Rarely have I ever seen this emphasized the way that it's emphasized in the New Testament. Everyone says, of course, we're supposed to be loving, but do we really get how urgent this is, and do we get what it looks like? Paul, in Colossians 3, he says this. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, above everything else, make this your number one priority. Peter says the same thing, First Peter 4.8. He says, above all... Main, constant, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. So, so yeah, yeah, you have your opinions about theology. That's wonderful, but, but put love above that. Uh, you've got your political ideas. Yeah, that's, that's fine, but put love above that. You, you, you uh, look at people, certain kinds of people with a certain kind of judgment, right? But no, put love above those judgments because love covers a multitude of sins. Whatever sins you think you see out there, put love, your your, your call to love that person higher than whatever sin you think you perceive in the person because love covers a multitude of sins. It, It means that there can be no competition for what's the number one important thing for us. It is love. There is no love but. There can only be one most important. Above all, last I checked, all means everything. Whatever else you got going on, whatever else you think is true, whatever else you believe, whatever other ideas you've got, above all of those, put on love. Clothe yourself with love. Wrap that around you and do not take it off. Above all, this is the most important thing, he's saying. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 14, a passage I, 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 I quote quite a bit. Um, you know, there is one disadvantage to going bald, and that is that your head gets shiny when you start to get sweaty. So I'm told. So I'm told, so, uh, for, for you who are noticing that I'm starting to sweat, uh, w- which is actually the anointing, especially when it happens in January, man, you're anointed. If you can sweat in January, you know you've got the power of God coming on you. Hallelujah. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says, "Do let everything you do be done in love. Do all that you do in love. All. Everything is to be under the umbrella of love because love's the most important thing, right? So our behaving is to be, is to be ruled by love. Our attitudes are to be ruled by love. Our language is to be ruled by love. What we say to people and what we say about people is to be ruled by love. Even what we think about God and about other people, any other person, it's got to be ruled by love. Let everything you do be done in love. Make that the goal of your life and you're on your way to the kingdom. Make that the most important bullseye of your life, of every day, of every moment, and you're on your way to the kingdom. So the most important question that we can ask ourselves of any activity that we're doing, think about this. Think how radical this is. The most important question. Whatever you're doing, it's to say, is this consistent with love? Is this activity consistent with love? What I'm thinking right now, what I'm saying right now, what I'm doing right now, is it consistent with love? Does it express love? Is it motivated by love? Are you loving? That's the most important question to ask yourself every moment. And that's just so we can get clear because there's a lot of funky ideas about what love is out there, just so that to avoid any confusion, let's be clear about what love is. Now, the Bible doesn't give us some abstract definition of love, but it gives us a concrete illustration of love, the most perfect illustration of love. We find this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John says, here's how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? Don't listen to the radio station, some songs about love, and don't listen to your hormones. Listen to the Bible. Here's what it says about love. We know love by this. That Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We should love others the way that he loved us. And then, then John says, how does God's love, the love that was revealed on Calvary, that's the kind of love that God is, how does God's love abide in somebody if they have the world's goods and they see their brother or sister in need and yet they refuse to help? That doesn't look like Calvary. Now Calvary... On the cross, God expresses what we are worth to him, but what God's willing to sacrifice for us. And he's willing to sacrifice everything. There's nothing he could, that he could sacrifice that he didn't sacrifice. He went to the furthest, furthest extreme possible. Um, and in doing that, he's, he's saying that we have unsurpassable worth to him. And this is what love is. Love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. Showing what someone's worth by what you're willing to sacrifice for them. And it's our central call. It's to, it's to live in this love is to receive this love, to trust in this love from God, and then to yield to that love and to be transformed by that love. And by this means to come, to begin to participate in this self-sacrificial love and to replicate this self-sacrificial love in our life. That, in sum, is the whole kingdom. Paul sums it up in Ephesians uh, 5, passage, another passage I quote quite a bit, where Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Since you're the children of God, well, then imitate your father. And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, imitate, he says, imitate God. And then notice this. He goes on now to talk about imitating Jesus. Live in love as, as, as Christ loved you. So it's pretty clear for Paul that to imitate, if you want to imitate God, you imitate Jesus, which tells you what Paul thinks about Jesus. Uh, This first century monotheistic Jew somehow got convinced that this contemporary of his was somehow the embodiment of Yahweh. He was God. So to imitate Jesus is to imitate God. Uh, The word imitate there is mimetai in Greek. It means to to mimic. We get the word mimic from it. Mimetai. To do exactly what you see another doing. And that's what it is to be a Jesus follower. And that's how we make our life a fragrant offering to God, the way he is. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's a fragrant offering to God. That's the bullseye. To do exactly to others what Jesus did to us. Uh, Ascribe worth to others at cross to yourself. And Paul says that we're supposed to live in this, to live in this love. Which means that as long as we're alive, it's the right time to be loving like this. If you ever have a question about whether it's the right time to love, you're you're considering a certain person and you think, should I love this person or not? And you mean by this kind of love, not romantic love, but the the kind of love that we're called to. Christ-like, cross-like, agape love. Well, you know, if you're in that position, you can stop thinking because check your pulse, check, check your are you breathing? Do you have any brain waves going on at all? And if the question, if the answer is yes to any of those, well, then it is the right time to love. Live in this love as long as you're alive. Be loving like this. There's no off button to this. Uh, th- whether we love or not has nothing to do with the merits of the person that we're considering. Whether they're if they're a friend, love them. If they're an enemy, well, you still love them. If they're going to bless you, you love them. If they, if they intend harm to you, you still love them. That's why Jesus says in, in later on in the Sermon on the Mount, what passage we'll get to, he says, that show that you're the children of God by loving like the way God loves. And what the, the way God loves is like the, rain, the way the rain falls and the way the sun shines. Uh, the sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get warm and the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get wet. It just does what it does. It's indiscriminate. It comes on the righteous and the wicked. Love like that. Love indiscriminately. We're not allowed to choose who to love and who are not. We're supposed to love like our Father loves, like the rain falls, like the sun shines. There's no off button on that. And that's how we reveal that we are made children of the Father in heaven. It sums up everything that we are called to do. That's right. Frankly, you know, we, you may, some of you, I'm sure, have noticed we've got a, a tagline. We've never had a tagline. For a while, we, we played with, you know, tearing down walls is sort of our slogan. Uh, uh, but we really never had one. And we recently were talking about it. finally landed on one. At least we're going to try it out. And I love it. Uh, it's, we're learning how to love together. Learning how to love together. Uh, in the light of this sermon, I hope you can see why this is, this is a perfectly appropriate and wonderful slogan to have. It's not sexy. It, you know, usually with slogans, you want something, a catchphrase. Like, oh, that's clever. Oh, oh, cool. That's original. You want original? Something like that. Learning to love together sounds so Christianity 101. But see, it's also Christianity PhD. Uh, this is the bullseye, and, 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 and we've got to do it in community. This is, this, everything we do is about that, one way or another. Learning to love God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we've always believed that, that if we get that down, then everything we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we don't get this down, then there isn't anything else worth getting down. It's worthless. It's worthless. That's so what Paul says. And this is my last passage. I I, I think I warned you that there's going to be a lot of scripture here. Keep on writing. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Irritating noise. You could translate that. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. It's wordless. It's wordless. And if I give away my possessions and even somehow martyr my own self so I can boast about it, but if I don't have love, I gain absolutely nothing. I mean, this is... Think about this passage. These are some pretty good things. Your tongues. Yeah, that's wonderful. Speaking in tongues of, of mortals or of angels. Gospel of it's called. Uh, a wonderful gift. Uh, but if it's not done in love, it's worthless. And having prophetic powers, man. You, when you preach, crowds just get slain. They, 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 you have these you speak the word of God prophetically and it just convicts everybody. Wonderful! But if it's not done for the purpose of love, it's, it's, it's irritating noise. And, and having all knowledge and knowing all mysteries, you can explain the Trinity to a five-year-old. And, and all knowledge, you have, you know every, how to parse every verb in the original language in the whole Bible. If it's not done in love, it's altogether worthless. And faith that can move mountains. I mean, if you had any of those things going on for you, you'd be on the cover of Christianity Today. You'd have a mega church. You'd be famous. Uh, you'd, you'd probably get invited on the 700 Club. I've never been invited, but you probably would if you could do that. Lucky call. Actually, I was on the 700 Club once. Yeah, about, yeah 15 years ago, I think. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Anyway, so you get my point. You see, but Paul is saying if those things, they are utterly worthless, as impressive as they are, as impressive as, as people might consider them, They're altogether worthless unless they're done for love. Out of love for the purpose of extending love. Which means that love is the one kingdom value giver. No activity has any kingdom value unless it's done in love. Think about that. It it is what gives value to anything that we do. Which also implies that anything that's not loving has no kingdom value. It doesn't matter what a a group claims. uh, It doesn't matter... What, if they have prophetic powers, doesn't matter if they, you can move mountains, it doesn't matter if they have all knowledge and wisdom, or at least they think they have all knowledge and wisdom. It doesn't matter. If, they're, if it's devoid of love, then it's not the kingdom. It's just a religious clanging symbol or something like that. Love is the sine qua non for all things kingdom. That without which it doesn't happen. So the ultimate measure for how a church is doing has got to be, are you learning how to live love together? It really, I I want to tip my hat off, my hat off, I don't have hat, but I tip my hat off to, to Janice Rowling, our executive pastor, who really was the driver of this learning to love together. I don't know if she came up with it, but she was the one who was really promoting it. While the rest of us were thinking, well, it's kind of like blah, vanilla, you know, but no, absolutely. This is simple. It's profound. It's beautiful. And that's the ultimate criteria. It ought to be, I submit to you, if you're thinking in terms of the New Testament, the ultimate criteria that you use to decide about what church, you're, what community you're supposed to be a part of. So you go to the church and it's, 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 oh, this church has got it going on, man. This church has got they got, they, they got sound doctrine. They're doing great on that. And they got a hip teacher who wears denim jeans and designer jeans or whatever they're called. And, and he attracts large crowds because he's got a great sense of humor. Wonderful. And how's the kids program? well it's fantastic. Check it off. And, and, and the music is kicking and they got lights and fog and, and they got nice chairs where it's, it's, it's easy on your, your bottom. And, and they got nice holders for you can put your coffee cups there. They thought of everything. And, and, and they, 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 they have good parking spaces. Uh, and Great programs are going all around. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But the question that w- the most important question to ask is: Is this a place where I'm going to be challenged to learn how to love better than I love currently? Is this a place that's really going to get be driving me to become more loving, along with the whole congregation? And see, as I as I as I, I read the New Testament. Um, I can't help but say that God would rather have a community of people who are learning how to love together, but maybe they got a few wrong teachings. Maybe they got nothing else going for them. They don't have the coffee cup holders. Their music sucks. Everything about it, and the preacher can't make a point. But if you're learning how to love together, I think that's the church that, that, that God would want you to be at. And some people might say, well, you just described Woodland Hills. This <laughs> preacher does suck. I'm just saying. you get the, you get the kind. Of, in fact, take all those wonderful things that a church might have that might attract you to this church. The incredible children's whatever. Uh, all that stuff. Now add to that. Oh, and on top of that, they can speak in tongues of, of, of men or of angels. And on top of that, they got prophetic powers. And on top of that, they, they have faith that can move mountains. Even with all those extra things, wonderful supernatural things, if it's not done in love, Paul is saying it's absolutely worthless. It's devoid of kingdom value. The one thing that gives value to anything in the kingdom is love. Now, one of the reasons why this message is so important is that when you understand that love looks like the cross, and this is what we're called to be at all times, you begin to notice how absent it is from the church and how absent it's been throughout much of church history. It's shocking, actually. When you understand this is the all or nothing of the kingdom, and then you look at church history. Now, the first couple centuries, they got it done. They were loving, they were wonderful. I'm sure they weren't perfect, but they were impressive. But then the church comes into power, and as soon as the church comes into power in the 4th and 5th century, they begin to act just like the world, like the kingdoms of this world. And the church becomes a persecuting church. In the name of the one who told us to turn the other cheek, we cut off people's heads. Start persecuting heretics. And then we go to the Middle Ages, and we have the Crusades, and, 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 and the Inquisition, and the Christian and christian wars for several hundred years after that. Now, there's always been a strand of very wonderful, beautiful, loving expressions of the body of Christ throughout church history, but by and large, the institutional church just did not, didn't, didn't manifest love. Here, here's something that I find shocking. You know, throughout church history, we had a lot of heretics, thousands of heretics put to death, uh, millions, some would estimate, of, of heretics or non-believers, infidels, or people in other faiths, Jews and Muslims. Uh, they're put to death uh, or banished. It's, it's, they're punished for, for being heretics. Usually, the death penalty, but not always. I personally don't know of one person being charged with heresy or even being gently reprimanded for not loving enough. I I can't think of one one, one example of that. And yet, if love is to be put above all, if, if love is the only thing that gives value to any activity and makes it a kingdom activity, if this is the beginning, middle, end of everything that we're supposed to be about, then to fail at this is to fail at everything. This is the worst heresy imaginable. This is the ultimate deal breaker, because everything that you have right and wonderful, and you, it, it is worthless if it's not founded on the foundation of love, Christ-like love, other-oriented love. Above all, put on love, which means that if you don't do that, the the most important thing you've failed at, and and then you're left with this. So, on October twenty seventh, fifteen fifty three. Michael Servetus was burned alive at the stake. Under the order of the Council of Geneva, headed up by John Calvin, he was sentenced as a heretic to be burned alive. Unfortunately, they used green wood, and it was a windy day, and so it took six hours for this guy to finally die. It was a horrendous, horrendous death. Now, Michael Servetus was a heretic because he didn't believe that the Son was eternal. He denied the eternal sonship of Jesus. They told him, if you'll just say eternal before the word son, we'll let you go, and he wouldn't do it. I mean, you've got to respect the guy's integrity, I guess. Um, he wouldn't say the word eternal. So he's burned alive. Now, it's a heresy to not believe that Jesus is, 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 is co-eternal with the Father. That is a heresy. That's an important heresy. Because it's, 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 it's it goes to Jesus' identity. But who is the worst heretic? Michael Servetus for having a wrong belief about Jesus or John Calvin and his counsel for sentencing this guy to die a horrendous death? Because it seems to me that burning at the stakes for six hours is not quite the loving thing to do to somebody. They failed at the most important thing. And so as far as I can see, this is the worst heresy of all. We don't call them out, all the folks throughout history who order the murdering of these folks. In fact, some of them are saints, considered saints, despite the fact that they murder in Jesus' name. Now maybe you think, well, gosh, that was in the past, but now we don't do that. Now we're much more loving. We're much more civilized. Yes, we modern Christians. And and I'm sure if you ask most of us Christians today, are are you loving, we'd say yes. We think we're loving. But here's the thing. If you want to find out if you're really, you know, how you're doing in love, don't ask yourself. Ask the people that you're supposed to be loving. If you want to find out if I'm a loving husband, don't ask me. I'll tell you that I am. Uh, ask Shelly. And she'll, I'm sure, tell you more than that. <laughs> no. She's the one who was in a better position to answer this. Um, so we have polls that ask people, what do you think about Christians? and the results are not that uh, happy. Um, Jesus still ranks pretty high on all poles. Uh, he, he's associated with love on all poles. Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, are way down towards the bottom. And far from being identified or associated with love, they're associated with, um, they're associated with intolerance. Uh, they're associated with being self-righteous, uh, narrow-minded, homophobic, not caring about the earth or the animal kingdom. They're not associated with love, let alone self-sacrificial love. And I, that is, I think, just an absolute tragedy. Uh, you know, Jesus, you can look at it this way. Jesus, who embodied love, he attracted the worst of sinners. They wanted to hang out with him, even though they know he wouldn't condone their behavior. Yet, his, his, the love he had for them rendered insignificant to them his opinion about their lifestyle. He, he just attracted them. And that had its own transforming effect on them. But they, grabbed, they steered clear of the Pharisees because the Pharisees judged them. They're hungry for worth, and Jesus loves, and love is all about ascribing worth to people. He he affirms their worth, their value, their unsurpassable worth. The Pharisees judge people, and that's about uh, 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 taking worth to yourself, taking worth from others in in order to to compliment yourself. So instead of ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself, you ascribe worth to yourself at cost to others. Judgment is the opposite of love. And so they stare clear of the Pharisees because no one wants to feel like they're worthless. So ask the question, are the worst of sinners in our culture, in our society, are they streaming to us because they want to hang out with us because our love for them is so feeding them that, that, that they, they, they put aside their differences and want to hang out with us? And the the answer, I think, is is, is pretty pretty obvious. Now, again, I want to say there are beautiful expressions of the body of Christ popping up all over the place. It's part of this this this, uh, Anabaptist Kingdom movement that's going on all around the world. Some radically wild, beautiful ways of doing church that are happening all over the place. But by and large, and especially, I would say, in the Western Hemisphere, Christians aren't known for their love, and that is the greatest tragedy. That's the greatest tragedy. That's the greatest failure. In fact, it's, it's the failure that has the greatest consequences. Um, I, I'm going to put forth the thesis here that I don't have time to defend, but I'm just going to put it forth uh, and chew on it. And I think you'll come to agree with me. And that is that, that um, uh, I just saw that they the reminded me of, to recap the, the sermon that announced the Tuesday. Th- this is what happens when you have ADD. Don't tell me, don't remind me of my sermon of something I got to do at the end of the thing. I won't be able to stay focused. What was I talking about? Oh, the thesis is this all of the problems in America, socially and politically, and, and, and I'd say this, this is true of the Western Hemisphere and on the whole, and I would even go beyond that, but I'll just keep my theory minimal right here, are due to this failure of the church we haven't loved. Like for example, Christians often decry the secularism of our age. You know, how they've taken God out of our public schools, they've taken God out of our public buildings, and now we have a secular society. Oh, it's those evil liberals who are doing this to us, you know, taking prayer out of school and all the rest. So let's say that that's a problem. It's not, it's, it is harder to live with faith when you're living in a secular environment. But see, here's the thing. If the church had been loving, we wouldn't have this problem. The only reason that I, people came up with this idea of a secular state in the 17th century was because... Christians were killing each other so much that it was costing these feudal lords and the kings too much money. So the feudal lords and kings got together and said, we've got to stop these Christians from killing each other uh, because we're losing money on this deal. And so they come up with the Peace of Westphalia, 1666, I believe it was. Uh, And it's basically a a declaration that no one is allowed to persecute anybody else because of their religion. The fun has ended. Those Michael Servita's days are gone. So the secular authorities they have to create a neutral space where there's no religion in order to keep people safe. That's because the Christians weren't loving each other, they were killing each other. About a, Some estimates a third of Europe was killed during these Christian and Christian wars in the 16th and 17th century. Or, or take the problem of racism. That's on us. At least in the Western Hemisphere, it's all on the, if the church had been loving the way that Christ loved us, do you think we would have come, the Europeans would have come over here and slaughtered everybody and, and, cheated them out of deals that they made? Do you think they would have imported millions of Africans and made slaves out of them? uh, Getting free labor out of them uh, for for centuries? No, because that's radically inconsistent with love. And everything we've got going on now with the race issues is because of all the fallout of Christians coming over here. And instead of loving, we enslave and we slaughter. Now, I can't fix history and I can't fix the church. I can't fix the world. Neither can you. But there's one thing we can do and that is to commit to be different to commit to be different, uh, to commit to being faithful. We can choose to make this our bullseye. And now I want to do, right now, I'm going to close the sermon by encouraging everybody, challenging everybody. Will you make this the bullseye of your life? I'm sure your job's important to you and, and you've got a lot of other things that are important to you, but will you make this if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope I have shown you how this is to be made the bullseye of your life. Whatever else you do, be doing this, because everything you do is to be done in love. Will you make this the bullseye uh, for the rest of today and, and, and then tomorrow when you get up? Make that your bullseye. Uh, when you're driving, make it your bullseye. I encourage you, one way of reminding me of this is that when, when you drive, since you're supposed to do everything in love, why not at least sometimes? Use that driving to just start loving people because you can do it anywhere at any time. Just start blessing them. Just start agreeing with God that they have unsurpassable worth. And whatever faults you may see in them, ignore them because it's none of your business. Just keep on blessing them. Live and love as Christ loves you and gave his life for you. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you also to take on this one other assignment. Uh, and I've shared this before. I think it's just one of those, f- those disciplines that every Christian should be involved in because you've got to flex this muscle if you're ever going to get good at it. Will you think of the three people in your life or on the planet that you have the hardest time not hating, who disgust you the most, who anger you the most, who grieve you the most, and will you commit to praying for them every day until your attitude towards them changes, which maybe will be every day for the rest of your life. Uh, I will tell you from experience, this can be incredibly hard because you've got to crucify your pride and crucify your vengeance in order to do it. And that's just one more reason why you should do it. So live life with this as your bullseye. This is the most important goal. If we fail at this, it's all over. Um, and, 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 and so throughout the day, be blessing folks, loving folks. Be conscious of your, that you're always on mission. You're a missionary who is to be a, a, a lover, <laughs> delivering the kingdom of love wherever you go. And then pray for the people that you have the hardest time. Pray for your enemies. Um, and that will change you, but it also blesses your enemies. Leave all vengeance to God. It's so, uh, i this end with this, it's so freeing to just leave it all to God. You, you, being the judge of the universe is very hard. The it, weight's heavy on you. But if you can just live and love as Christ loved, uh, loved us and, and leave all, God will right every wrong. That's his business. Our job is just to be on, on the loving side of things. All right, well, now remember we do have, uh, on Tuesday at four uh, o'clock, we have our, our uh, uh, what's it called? It's called, Musecast. New, yeah, MuseCast, MuseCast. I'm going brain dead here. Uh, And and they uh, go over the message and they bring out some stuff about it and talk about it. So uh, we encourage you to to check that out. We also have the gathering groups that we encourage folks to get involved in uh, where they also go deeper with the message and talk about some things. And if you have any need that could use prayer, uh, stick around after the service is done and go to one of our prayer Zoom rooms. And uh, uh, there's folks there who would love to minister to you. Take advantage of that. Uh, as we leave here, can we do it with a, as we leave here, look, at we haven't left here for a year. <laughs> as you stay where you are, uh, I, I, can we do this wherever we go, whatever, whatever we're involved in, can we make the commitment to make the bullseye the, the center of the center about loving others like Jesus loved us? Nothing could be more important than that. God bless you guys. I love you. I look forward to the day when we can be back together again. In the meantime, hang in there. Stay connected. Bye-bye.